Well, tonight I want us to look at the subject matter, the making of a man of God. The making of a man of God. 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16. And we're going to begin in uh, verse 29 and read down through the end of chapter 17. Continuing our journey through 1 Kings. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made, the, made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's a pretty powerful statement. And as bad as some of the kings have been, he was the worst of all. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook uh, Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and 
And, and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Charles Spurgeon once stated, God fits the man for the hour and the hour for the man. There's a voice for the hour and an hour for the voice. Now, folks, in this section of 1 Kings, we're going to see how true that actually is. Uh, against the backdrop of unfaithful kings that we've been looking at, God sends his man, his prophet, on the scene. And this prophet's name, of course, is Elijah. You know, in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, God says, I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. God couldn't find anybody to stand in the gap. Now, folks, the same could not be said in Elijah's time. Because in a, in a time of decline, moral and spiritual decline in the nation, Elijah stood in the gap virtually alone. And he spoke for the Lord when nobody else did. Now, before we look deeper at the beginning of Elijah's ministry, I want us to understand a little bit more of the context here. And you know, as we think about the context, I think of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And what was the famous opening line in that book? Does anybody remember? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And folks, the very same thing could be said about Israel at this point. We saw last week with Omri becoming the king of Israel. Look at verse 25 of what is said there. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did more evil than all who were before him, for he walked in the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. So he was wicked. Now his son, Ahab, even more wicked, has come to the throne. 
Now, let me say this. From a secular point of view, the time of Omri and the time of Ahab ushered in, believe it or not, a time of peace. It was also a time of increasing regional power. And Israel was gaining more and more national and international prominence. Archaeologists suggest that some of the craftsmanship that's been discovered in Samaria uh, during Ahab's day was perhaps unequaled in quality. Uh, during the 22 years of Ahab's reign from 874 B.C. to 853 B.C., he consolidated and he expanded his father's achievements and his military force became a force to be reckoned with. And so a secular historian would have looked at the nation during Omri and Ahab and a, again, a secular historian would have probably given a somewhat positive report because they were dwelling in abundance and in peace for the most part. But you know, God has a different perspective, doesn't he? While it was the best of times on the one hand, it was also the worst of times. Uh, look again at verse 30 uh, of chapter 16. Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And you keep reading it says, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sons, uh, the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Folks, it would have been bad enough if he just walked in the sins of Jeroboam. And for those who may be new to our study tonight, what did Jeroboam do? What did he introduce to the northern kingdom? Idolatry. He set up the two golden calves. Uh, one in the northern reaches of the land and one in the southern reaches of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam brought the worship of those idols to the land. And we're being told here, it'd be bad enough if Ahab just stopped right there. If he, if he was only guilty of continuing to lead the country in the sins of of Jeroboam. I mean, that would have been bad enough. But notice what he does. He goes on to marry Jezebel. Folks, we all know how wicked Jezebel is. And by the way, nobody, fortunately, names their daughters Jezebel anymore. Because everybody recognizes her name being associated with evil. And her dad was it. Ethbel, and he ruled in Sidon and the entire region of Phoenicia out near the coastlands. He reigned there for 33 years. And he wasn't just a king, but he was a king priest. While he ruled politically, he was also serving the Canaanite false god Baal. 
And Jezebel was like her father. She was a devoted follower of Baal herself. And she was determined not only to worship Baal, but also make Baal or make Baalism the new state religion of Israel. Now, what do you remember that I've told you about Baalism in the past in here? It was a fertility religion, basically. Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites. He was believed to be the storm god who came riding on the clouds. And he would bring rains to the earth, they, the Canaanites believed. And he had a, a wife, Ashtaroth. And Baal and Ashtaroth, the Canaanites believed, and the heavens above would engage in acts of intimacy, and that would bring fertility to the land. And so the Israelites would build altars to Baal at the high places, trying to get as close to the clouds as possible. And there they would call out to Baal. And there were male and female prostitutes of Baal, and they would engage in sexual acts with the people of the land because that believed, that would, they believed that would motivate Baal and Ashtaroth to engage in sexual acts and bring even more fertility to the land. You can't get much more pagan than that. Uh, and, and you know, God had warned them time and again not to get involved in any of that. In fact, they were to run the Canaanites out of the land. They were, they were to destroy them because, you know, God had said when you enter the land, if you don't drive these people out, you're going to start compromising with them and adopting their ways and eventually you're going to forget about me the living God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt but they didn't listen to God they began intermingling with these people and then even trying to marry their worship of Jehovah God with Baalism they would try to bring the two together in, in a synchronistic type way well that's what Jezebel wants to see more and more of in Israel. She wants to see the Israelites turn away from Yahweh or Jehovah, and she wants to see the Israelites begin to worship the God that her father and herself have worshipped. She wants to make Baalism the official religion of Israel. So that, that explains uh, part of her wickedness. And her influence over her husband was profound. She had Ahab build an altar for Baal in Samaria. She appointed priests to Baal, and she fed the false priest from her royal table. And then on top of that, she made it her mission any priest of Yahweh, she was going to have that priest executed. So kill the priest of the Jews and set up priest to Baal. That's her mission. And so you can understand right there what her agenda was. And 
She got her husband Ahab right in there with her. Folks, I want you to understand the magnitude of what's happening here. Because from Genesis 12, God had called Abraham to, to go to a new place and God was going to build a nation through Abraham's descendants. And that's what he had done. And then after God led them out of Egypt, their mission was very clear. They were, when God led them to the promised land, they were to be a lighthouse to other nations so that other nations might come to know the one true God and they would turn away from their false gods like Baal. Their mission was to be salt and light. But now here along comes Jezebel and Ahab and, and they're trying to make Israel change gods. Uh, and Israel's mission, if they have their way, Israel's mission and distinctiveness that God wanted for them would be gone, would be erased. Folks, isn't that just like Satan? Satan would like nothing more than try to get us comp to compromise with the ways of the world until finally we have turned our backs on Christ altogether. He would like nothing more to get us to do that. And unfortunately, he succeeds too much at that, doesn't he? Verse 34 of chapter 16 uh, ought to be a reminder to everybody, though. It says, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Okay, what's going on there? Does anybody remember? can't rebuild, uh, or there's a curse anybody tries to rebuild uh, Jericho. Exactly. You can go back in, in uh, the book of Joshua and read, when Jericho fell, God pronounced a curse on anybody who would try to rebuild Jericho. That they would lay its foundation at the cost of their oldest son, and they would set up new gates to Jericho at the cost of their youngest son. God had told them that back when Jericho fell. God gave them a prophecy of what would happen to anybody who tried to rebuild Jericho. But here's this guy, Hael. He tries to rebuild it. What happens to him? It's at the cost of his oldest son, and his youngest son. Just like God had said. Folks, it's a subtle reminder to us that God's word will prevail. God keeps his word. When he tells us something, we can bank on it. And it's happened to this man just like God had said it would happen. You say, well, how in the world could something like this happen? Well, Hiel either didn't know what God's Word was, or he thought he could thumb his nose at God's Word. Don't people do the same type of stuff today, though? 
They know what God says in His Word about certain things, but they're going to go ahead and do it anyway. People do stuff like that all the time, right? They'll know something sinful because God said so in His Word, and either they don't know God's Word, or they think, oh, it's going to be different with me. I can do it and get away with it. And they don't. They pay a price. Well, this is the scene into which Elijah arrives. And he comes on the scene like a bolt of lightning. And I want you to see from verse 1 the declaration. The declaration. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He is confronting wicked Ahab. By the way, Elijah's name is a sermon in and of itself. It means, my God is Yahweh. And it's also significant to know that from this point all the way through chapter 9 of 2 Kings, the central figures are no longer to, going to be the kings that we've been studying about. But the major players from here through chapter 9 of 2 Kings are going to be God's prophets. Elijah, and then who came after Elijah? Elisha, exactly. So they're going to be center stage. And it just goes to show that God always has his servants in place. You know, earthly kings, earthly powers may think that they're the main focus. But they're not always the main focus. God has his people in place. Right? God has his people. And Elisha, uh, Elijah's message was brief, but it was powerful. And what was that message? There's not going to be dew nor rain for a period of three years. And that's all he says at this point. And poof, he's gone again. What we need to understand uh, again here is something about Baalism and the challenge this was to Baalism. Because they believed that Baal, in addition to bringing the rains, that he also died and came back to life each year. God's going to show wicked Ahab and Jezebel that Baal's not in charge of the weather. Baal's not in charge of the weather. He's not in charge of the rain. And he's not in charge of death and life. God is. What's going to happen here? What, what does happen here? With rain not coming, and then the widow's son dying, what's God doing? God is directly challenging the beliefs of those who held to Baalism. Because there's not going to be rain. It doesn't matter how much people who worship Baal pray to him, beg him to send rain, there's not going to be rain. There's not going to be rain. 
And I'll have more to say with the widow of Zarephath in a moment uh, and how a challenge, what a challenge that was, again, to Baalism. But God is directly challenging a false religion here. It's just like he did in Egypt with the ten plagues. Folks, the ten plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians were not just coincidental plagues. Every plague that God sent upon the Egyptians was a challenge to one of the Egyptians' false gods. Every one of those plagues. And God was showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians, here's what I think of your gods. They're not living gods. They're dead. They have no power. And I'm going to send a plague that's going to be an affront to their power that you claim they have. And that's what he's doing right here with Baalism. Well, secondly, I want you to see the delay. First of all, the declaration that Elijah makes, there's not going to be dew nor rain for three years. Then the delay. Right after the message, God has Elijah do what? Go into hiding. Elijah's going to be out of sight for a period of three years. And during that three years, the drought is going to take a hold of the land and it's going to drive the people to absolute desperation. But those three years are also going to be a time of training for Elijah. Elijah is going to have a period of time to learn something further about this God that he himself represents. Elijah himself is going to learn more about Yahweh. And there's going to be no doubt in Elijah's mind that God is the only God Elijah himself is going to see God's provision during a time when it could have only been God keeping him alive. Now, also we need to see Elijah's not going to be used in a great public way until he has had this private time with God. And we see that over and over again in the Scriptures, don't we? Whoever God calls, He generally calls them in a time of preparation first, right? There was Moses who spent 40 years in Midian. There was David who as a young boy was a shepherd boy tending a flock. Folks, Jesus, even Jesus didn't begin his public ministry until he was 30 years of age. And then when Jesus called his disciples, what time period did they go into Three years while Jesus was with him. Remember how when he called James and John out of their boats, he said, I'm going to teach you to be fishers of men. And he trained them and discipled them for a period of three years. When God called Paul on the road to Damascus and saved Paul, Paul didn't go immediately in, into missions, those missionary journeys. Where did he go first? He went into Arabia for a period of three years. That's why I tell young men who come to me today in the church and say, hey, God's called me into the ministry. I say, go away and prepare. You know, a, a call to preach and a call to minister is a call to prepare. You need that period of preparation time. It's important. 
And we need to be reminded that, of that likewise in the body of Christ. God prepares his servants. If God's called you to do something in the church, prepare for it. If you're a Sunday school teacher, make sure you're doing your preparations. If you're in the choir, go to rehearsals, prepare. Preparation's important. And for his preparation, I want you to notice where God sent Elijah. He sends him by a brook. Now remember, there's a drought in the land, but for a time, Elijah is going to be taken care of physically by a brook for his water, and God has commanded the ravens to bring him bread and meat every morning and every evening. What's that remind you of? The manna. And how God looked after uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness every day gave them manna. Elijah's going to be taken care of when everybody else is starving. And Elijah's going to see this is God's provision. God is taking care of him in the wilderness just like God took care of the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. But then, notice what happens. The brook dries up. Folks, you can be in the middle of God's will and your brook dries up. Sometimes people erroneously think if I'm doing God's will, everything's going to just fall right into place. Not necessarily. God may have other tests for you during that time. Your brook may dry up. That doesn't mean you're out of the will of God. God's just going to test you in a new way. God's going to show you something else in a new way. God's not done with Elijah's training yet. He's been in basic classes. Now it's time to get him into more advanced classes. And so he sends him to Zarephath. Zarephath was located eight miles south of Sidon, and it's the very region where Jezebel's father was the king priest of Baal. Folks, this was the heartland of Baalism where God is sending Elijah to next. The heartland. God's going to send his prophet into the very center of of Baal's turf. And he's going to teach them all some lessons while Elijah is there. Elijah's going to be cared for by a widow. Now that's strange because widows were normally taken care of by others. But through a nobody, through a destitute little widow, Elijah is going to once again see God's provision. 
Folks, if Elijah had been disguised in some way and sent to the household of Jezebel's father, and Jezebel's father wouldn't have known who Elijah was, Jezebel's father being the head honcho in that region, I'm sure he had the resources. He could have taken care of Elijah, no problem. And, and, and nobody would think anything of it. Here's a rich, powerful man taking care of Elijah, even though he doesn't know exactly who Elijah is. But when we read that God sends Elijah to a poor little widow who's destitute, thinks she herself and her son are about to die, and God takes care of all of them, then what's everybody going to stand back and say? God's done this. What a great God Yahweh is. God's going to take care of Elijah through a Gentile prophet, a Gentile widow who had nothing. And in fact, Elijah's even going to witness God taking care of her and her son, too. And I want you to notice when he finds her, he finds her in a state of hopelessness. She's gathering sticks. She's going to go home and start herself a fire and bake uh, a loaf of bread, what little bit of flour she has left. Uh, she and her son are going to eat it, and they're going to prepare to die because she's fixing the Get ready, the last bit of food she has ready. And that's how Elijah finds her. And notice what he asked her to do, because it's astounding. Either Elijah is the most selfish man on the face of the earth, or he's acting at God's command. And it's the latter, isn't it? He's acting at God's command. You fix me something to eat first. Bring it to me. Then you and your son eat. And oh, by the way, the bowl of flour and the jar of oil that you're going to use to fix what you think is your last meal, it's never going to run dry. And you're never going to do without until the God of Israel ends this drought. This is a big step of faith for her. Notice what she does. She goes and does exactly what Elijah says. And she finds out things happen just like Elijah said they were. She goes and fixes, uh, gets her, her bowl of flour out, jar, jar of oil, and day after day, as she's baking her bread, the bowl of flour and the jug of oil never runs dry. There's always enough for one more meal. Notice God didn't drive a thousand chariots into her kitchen and load her pantries up. God didn't work that way. What did God do? Every day, He gave her what they would need for that day. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Again, what's that remind you of? Through the desert, the manna. They would go and gather what they would eat for that day. And uh, right before the Sabbath, they were to gather another day's 
because they weren't to go and gather on the Sabbath. And remember when the people tried to gather too much all at once, what happened to it? It went bad, had worms in it. God provided for them daily what they needed. And that's what God is doing here. Think about this. Every day this woman sees her people, servants of Baal, and they're starving. And here she is entertaining a prophet of the God of Israel and her food never runs out. What kind of testimony do you think she ends up having her people to her people uh, time it's said and done? My God can be dependent on. Probably like the woman at the well who went back and said, come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. That's the type of testimony this woman ends up with too. She's able to testify to her people. She's probably listening to Elijah pray and he's probably telling her about the true God and she's seeing with her own eyes what's going on every single day. But the God of her country and the God of her people can't do a lick. Here's a drought and her God, who's supposed to be the one sending the rains, he's, he, pardon the English, the grammar, he ain't able to do nothing. Her God ain't able to do nothing. And he's supposed to be the very one they believe can do something. But the time of learning is not over yet. Elijah and this widow lady still have one more class that they need to attend and it's going to be the hardest class of all. Her son dies. Now folks, remember what I said a moment ago, what the Canaanites believed about Baal? They believed that Baal himself died and came back to life the next year. And they believed that even Baal himself couldn't control death. He couldn't control these matters. And so what does God do? God takes the life of her son and gives it back within probably just hours, we would assume. And what's God showing? God is showing both this widow and Elijah and all of her people that he alone is the sovereign God over death and life. Death is no challenge to him. Death is a bit of a challenge to him, to the true and the living God. The woman comes to the conclusion that Elijah's God speaks only the truth and that Elijah is indeed his prophet. You see, folks, back then also you need to understand they thought that each land had its own God. Your God couldn't operate outside of your country. So if you left the boundaries of your country and went into another country, you were then under the jurisdiction of the God of that land and your God was powerless to do anything for you in a foreign land. But what are they seeing here? 
Baal, the supposed God of that land, his own land, can do nothing. And God, who's supposed to only be the God of the Israelites back there in the promised land, he's the one sovereign over everything in Baal's territory. You see what's being, what's being pointed out here? Well, this gets us to the point that Elijah is going to be ready now for the ministry that God's going to call him to in chapter 18. And you don't want to miss chapter 18 next week. Because the prophets of Baal are going to be challenged again on Baal's turf, Mount Carmel. And we'll talk more about that next week. Why Elijah was giving the prophets of Baal home turf advantage. And still their God was able to do nothing. While the true and the living God again did the impossible. Some lessons. God fulfills His Word. God fulfills His Word. 500 years have gone by since Jericho has fallen. And yet when Hiel tried to rebuild Jericho, he suffered the loss of his sons. God keeps His Word. Secondly, God does not see as man sees. Man may look at his times and see peace and prosperity. God may look at those very same times and see idolatry and apostasy. Folks, what matters is what, what God thinks of us, what God thinks of our times. A nation can be in abundance, maybe more so than any other period in their history, and yet if they're pagan, God sees that, and God will judge that land. Third lesson, God raises up His servants to challenge the culture. And most often His servants are rejected and ridiculed. But God uses them in mighty ways to challenge the culture. Fourth lesson, God prepares His servants for their assignments. You might feel right now that you're in the wilderness for some reason. And I want to tell you, it's not a waste of time. If you feel like you're in the wilderness, what's God trying to teach you in the wilderness? Is He trying to get you ready for something? And then lastly, others are blessed when servants of God obey God. Others are blessed when servants of God obey God. 